and welcome to Conventions, a podcast about the history of constitutions brought to you by the Quill Project at Pembroke College, Oxford. My name's Grace Mallam, and I'm your host. In contemporary Western Europe and North America, along with many other parts of the world, constitutionalism is something we associate with limited government and the protection of the rights of citizens. We even use the term constitutional government as a near synonym for liberal democracy. But democracies aren't the only governments with constitutions. Since the age of revolutions, many of the world's most repressive regimes have drafted and promulgated constitutions that claim to protect the rights of the people, preserve the separation of powers, and minimise the reach of the executive branch. In this episode, I'll be talking to Paul Fisher, a practising barrister and academic lawyer whose research focuses on constitutional amendment in the Russian Federation and other post-Soviet regimes. Together we'll explore why so many historical non-democracies, as well as their contemporary counterparts, have spent so much time and state energy on producing and distributing these constitutional documents. What, if anything, do these texts have to do with the actual practice of government in non-democratic regimes? And what can studying these regimes teach us about the relationship between democracy and constitutionalism? Paul, thank you so much for coming on the Conventions podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you, Grace. Your career is quite interesting because you are practising as a barrister at the same time as undertaking your research. So my question for you is, how did you, you know, how did you get here? Um, How did you get interested in constitutionalism? Um, And and what is your sort of research focus, if you could introduce our audience to your sort of research? Yes, of course. Perhaps I start with the the last of those points, uh, Grace. My, My research is primarily into constitutional amendment in non-democratic regimes and particularly um, how constitutional amendment is used by non-democratic leaders to address threats to the longevity of their regime. And uh, I uh, I came by this um, really a, a quite, a, quite a long journey for me. Uh, I, I started out as, a, uh, as a, an academic lawyer when I was um, at university, so I did an undergraduate and postgraduate degree in in law, but a, a huge component of that was jurisprudence. And one thing that always interested me was rules and um, the nature of obligation. Uh, and and that's particularly interesting in the context of non-democratic regimes, because we often assume that um, particularly constitutions, but law in general in non-democracies, don't really give rise to obligation. We see uh, presidential administrations uh, and authoritarian leaders as sitting above the law. Uh, and uh, the the, uh, the clash between these two principles, that law must have some obligatory force in order to be law, um, the use of law in non-democratic regimes and the um, the, the, the power, the political power of non-democratic leaders, this tension uh, gave rise to uh, a number of questions that I could only really answer if I embarked upon my my research. And, and as a practising lawyer, uh, I do a, a mix of public and, and commercial law, both here and abroad. So I have the ability to see how principles like the rule of law apply uh, in the... Uh, English jurisdiction, but I also see the operation of law in um, in uh, jurisdictions that we that we wouldn't regard as being 
democratic, uh, and uh, that that um, that contrast has always fascinated me. To be working across jurisdictions um, and to be able to essentially be doing that sort of comparison just in your day to day work um, is really really interesting. Um, and uh, so I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how I came to be interested in authoritarian constitutionalism um, because in a sense I don't have any ha- um, sort of first hand experience. Um, of those regimes at all. And I work on the United States. I spend a lot of time in the United States talking to Americans about how um, their constitution works. And um, something that uh, Americans understand constitutions to do is to limit government um, and uh, to protect rights and to stop the government from infringing rights, essentially. Um, And that's sort of what they would understand um, the principal function of a constitution to be. Um, And so coming across uh, the fact, learning relatively recently, shockingly recently, that many authoritarian regimes do have um, written constitutions um, really uh, made me think, rethink what it is that constitutions do, which I think is what you're getting at when you're talking about um, the law and obligations um, and uh, the fact that essentially do do even do even authoritarian leaders have to essentially obey the law in some sense. So my first question for you then about that in a in a sort of broad way is. Why would a non-democracy or an authoritarian regime promulgate a constitution? Yes, I mean, this is a it's a really interesting uh, starting point, And I think it must be the starting point, Grace. And I'm glad you've raised it, because just just taking a step back and looking at uh, the United States Constitution uh, and its um, development in the late um, 18th century, you see after uh, the um, Founding Fathers created this document, and it was a foundational document, it was, it was then used as a blueprint for uh, a developing phenomena of the nation-state. Uh, during the 19th century, as you know, there was this explosion of written constitutions. And as an English lawyer, that's always uh, been interesting to me, because, of course, uh, the uh, de facto position when it comes to having a constitution, is now uh, the codified or written form rather than uh, the uncodified uh, English constitution that we have here in uh, in this jurisdiction. And it's largely because of the history that you study, the history of the United States and its impact on the globe. So uh, the, the starting point to your question is the de facto status quo position for new republics, certainly since the 19th century, has been to have a written constitution. And if we just pause there, it's always uh, an important starting point to to, to remind ourselves that actually most uh, nation states need a constitution. Indeed, all uh, forms of organisation in civil society need a constitution of sorts, uh, even if it's uh, an unwritten one. So the the constitution in a non-democratic regime performs a very similar function to the constitution in a democratic regime in this sense, that it is an organising framework for government, um, to use uh, the the expression uh, used by uh, Ginsburg and Simpson, it becomes a a blueprint for government. Um, It becomes uh, the organising 
document, because even non-democratic leaders need to be able to pinpoint where power resides. So that that's the starting point. But the more unique uh, factor, I would suggest, in non-democratic regimes is what, what's sometimes referred to as its coordinating function, and particularly its coordination of uh, uh, elite networks. Uh, and uh, Henry Hell's written quite extensively about this in his um, uh, book on uh, comparative constitutions, particularly in the post-Soviet space. He talks about how constitutions serve uh, uh, to provide a, uh, an information effect and a focal effect. And what he means by that is you may have, for example, an institution of the presidency. And one can see from the constitution that it is an indivisible powerful role um, that uh, any uh, political actor would wish to occupy. That's the information effect. It identifies the role as being one uh, that is worthy of occupation by anyone seeking power within the political system. But it also has a focal effect in this sense, that actually it serves going forward prospectively to identify officeholder uh, X as being the individual around whom networks should coordinate and coalesce if they want to survive, if they want to um, gain from the uh, distribution of rents within that political system. So you have the coordinating function uh, as well. And also uh, it may uh, serve uh, to um, provide policy commitments. This is perhaps one of the uh, other unique features of non-democratic regimes, more than democratic regimes, that, that constitutions sometimes provide commitments um, on economic and social policy, and the Soviet Union was a good example of that, uh, pr primarily because ideology becomes a cohesive factor um, within the survival of the regime, and particularly uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, where economic and social policy was um, the justificatory um, ideology for uh, the continuation of the regime. So uh, there are lots of different functions that constitutions serve and there is a Venn diagram, if you like, when we're looking at uh, democratic and non-democratic regimes. Sometimes they serve very similar purposes as with um, the, the, the uh, blueprint principle that I've mentioned, but, but other uh, functions are, are quite distinctive to non-democratic regimes. This point about policy, you've raised a number of really interesting points there. The point about the, the, the constitution as a sort of um, policy platform is one that I found particularly interesting in looking, particularly at those constitutions of the Soviet Union and China and the idea that after a certain amount of time to demonstrate that you were in a particular phase of, uh, of, of social development, of communist development, for example, that you would, you would need to draft a new constitution to demonstrate sort of which phase you were in um, or, or that particular leaders would feel that it was their duty to... Um, to lay out their particular policy goals um, through um, drafting a constitution, which is this this really interesting um, uh, way of thinking about constitutions that that, con that contrasts quite strongly um, with the sort of Western liberal tradition in certain ways. Um, but you also mention sort of the role of institutions um, that you know the sort of operative role of institutions because these regimes aren't just. Aren't, are not in fact 
um, made up of only one person. So could you talk a little, and also the role of party, which I really want to come back to in a second. Could you talk about then, you use the word coordination, the role of these um, constitutional blueprints in coordinating the interests of different individuals within a given uh, non-democratic regime. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the a good example of this this process of coordination is actually uh, the the latest reforms that we've seen, the latest amendments we've seen in the Russian Federation. Um, and let's just um, look at the chronology. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin was elected in 2018, re-elected, uh, and uh, he was elected. Um, to his second consecutive term uh, of office. Uh, I say consecutive because, as you know, he'd already served um, three terms prior, uh, with a gap in between, <laughs> having uh, having been uh, having had his uh, seat kept warm by um, uh, Dmitry uh, Medvedev. So, in 2018, following his presidential election, uh, the, um, the the whispers began. People started talking about the so-called 2024 problem. What was Putin going to do at the end of his second consecutive term, uh, given that Article 81.3 of the Russian Federation's constitution stipulated that you couldn't serve a further term um, consecutively? And that 2024 problem um, and the whispers that I've uh, discussed inevitably creates a problem for any leader. Um, Of course, that depends upon their political strength. But immediately, these networks that exist around the leader and upon which the leadership depends start asking themselves, who is going to be in the hot seat? Who is going to be in the presidency um, following 2024? And uh, if it is to be Putin, how quickly is he going to act to ensure that all of our interests are protected? Because we're wedded. We're wedded to his leadership. And so uh, the the rumours began uh, circling that perhaps constitutional amendment was afoot and eventually come uh, January 2020, Putin announces that he's going to uh, embark upon a process of constitutional amendment. It wasn't uh, until uh, well into the legislative process uh, that somebody on the floor of the House, uh, the first woman in space, in fact, um, uh, Tereshkova, uh, decided to introduce an amendment. Uh, that would, if it was known as the zeroing amendment, uh, that would effectively restart the clock uh, for President Putin and Medvedev uh, come the presidential elections in 2024. So that signals to uh, the elite networks around the president that he is likely to stay in power for the foreseeable. And that shores up his position and it gets rid of, or at least uh, mutes, uh, the so-called lame duck dilemma, which is that the closer you come to the end of that second consecutive term, the more likely you will be seen as someone from whom um, the power uh, is uh, leaking. So that's that's the first um, element, elite coordination uh, due to term limits. The, the other uh, potential reason why uh, constitutions, and, and more specifically constitutionalism, may be of use to a non-democratic leader is uh, what um, uh, Anne Meng refers to as uh, institutionalised pacts of um, rent distribution. Uh, What does this mean? Uh, It it means that sometimes uh, a leader will accede to uh, 
limitations on their power, even an authoritarian one, where they see the alternative as being uh, unpalatable. And the alternative to accepting restraints on government or leadership might be full-blown mutiny by elite networks. And they may mutiny because uh, they are concerned about uh, information asymmetries between them and the autocrat. And the more the autocrat can do to assuage their fear that they are entirely omnipotent, it, it, the better for the, the leadership uh, because... Uh, these networks know that they can resort ultimately to formal processes, if if absolutely necessary, uh, to um, either get rid of them uh, or um, balance out uh, their uh, power. A good example of that might be the creation of a vice presidency. It could be the creation of powerful uh, ministries like a, a defence uh, ministry uh, to uh, balance out uh, uh, political power. Or it could be through uh, accepting formal mechanisms uh, to either get rid of the president uh, or uh, to ensure that the legislature and the elites that govern uh, can uh, obtain influence over government appointments, let's say. So that's another example of why an authoritarian or an autocrat may uh, resort to uh, uh, using constitutionalism uh, to their benefit. You mentioned, so your your work is on the process of constitutional amendment. And um, so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. We're sort of leading towards, so the first question being, you know, what is the Russian process for constitutional amendment um, as, as sort of um, provided for in the constitution? And a second connected question, which is really about the shape of the codified constitution itself, because something I've found interesting in looking at a relatively recent codified constitution um, in a non-democracy such as Russia's is the considerable resemblance it bears to any other sort of relatively recent constitution that's been drafted, or just superficially at least, in terms of the provisions, it looks like a moderately solid kind of instrument. Um, in the in almost in a sort of liberal tradition so i sort of wondered you, you know you mentioned the difference between a constitution and constitutionalism um you know what are the sort of hallmarks of an authoritarian constitution in its text or is it really a matter of the political culture that sort of governs um the 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 regime and how does your work on constitutional amendment fit into that yeah, absolutely. Let's let's uh, start with the, the the second of these two questions because um, if we uh, go back twenty or thirty years before what might be regarded as the um, institutional turn in the academic literature, it was often thought that constitutions really play a very small part uh, in uh, understanding uh, authoritarian and non democratic regimes, um, and that actually. Uh, you saw academics, uh, if not explicitly, then impliedly acceding to uh, Lenin's view on constitutions. Um, you may remember that Lenin, and I know that's quite a bold statement for, for me to make, uh, but sometimes uh, it's necessary. L you may remember that Lenin talked about what he called constitutional illusions. He was of the opinion that constitutions fundamentally were a reflection of power. They didn't constrain it or shape it. 
Uh, you you then see a, a development, um, this institutional turn in the academic literature, where people start realising not just that constitutions, but institutions more generally, uh, and that includes uh, legislatures, it includes judicial organs uh, of power, are worthy of study if we want to understand how non-democratic regimes work. And if you have a look at my uh, the, the, the topic of my research, which is how constitutional amendments are used to address threats to uh, leadership longevity, the starting point is to look at recent history, particularly in the post-Soviet space. Uh, and history tells us that authoritarians or non-democrats embark upon uh, constitutional amendment when they're worried about uh, the stability of their leadership. They may do other things. I mean, if you take Lukashenko's regime as an example, after August 2020, when he was widely criticised for having uh, defrauded the electorate, um, he noticed that um, uh, he couldn't quell public protest uh, uh, very quickly or easily. Uh, he did resort to coercion, outright coercion, but he also very, very speedily after the election results uh, announced uh, a plan of constitutional reform. Now, the details weren't really worked through for a number of uh, months, and we're only really seeing the product of that uh, in the beginning of 2022. But we see that uh, non-Democrats, uh, like Lukashenko, do resort to amendment when they fear for the stability of their regimes. So that must provoke a question from people uh, like me and from academics, which is, well, why? What, what unique utility uh, does constitutional amendment uh, have for uh, individuals such as Lukashenko uh, and for President Putin? Um, the, um, the, the other point to, to note, though, is that constitutional amendment is often used to address different kinds of threat. And I've, I've analysed uh, amendment in the former Soviet space since uh, the dissolution of the USSR. And it seems to me that there are two overarching potential threats that, that amendment is used to address. The first are uh, the classic term limits that we've discussed in the case of President Putin. Those are internal uh, internal threats that arise from the constitution itself. The second are the external, the, the uh, public protests, the public unrest, uh, uh, which um, sometimes precipitates uh, amendment. In the former case, when we look at internal threats, I often get the response from people, well, you ask what the strategic utility of amendment is, uh, Paul, but isn't it obvious? It's intuitive, isn't it, that if you have a, a presidential term limit, um, you must amend it in order to uh, get around it and, and to, to, to avoid it. But actually, it's not quite as intuitive as it seems, because uh, although uh, Putin embarked upon reform in 2020, the um, similar example... Uh, that we see in 2008, um, in which he was facing uh, the end of his second consecutive uh, term in office, did not provoke amendment. And he explicitly stated that he effectively didn't want to fiddle with the Constitution. The alternative strategy that he developed then was what uh, Versteeg and others have called the faithful agent strategy. And he uh, put in place uh, and uh, although there's a degree of argument about the, the degree of uh, control he exercised over him, he certainly um, uh, uh, essentially encouraged Medvedev into the post of uh, 
the presidency. Uh, and uh, Medvedev, as I say, uh, kept the seat warm for him for um, for uh, for four years. So, so we can see there that the amendment may have strategic utility to uh, uh, these leaders, both to address internal and uh, and external threats. We mentioned earlier the sort of um, the role of party. Um, obviously, looking at um, the former uh, communist or current communist regimes, um, the the role within the party is as was more important of course than role within the constitution insofar as leadership roles were in fact represented in the constitutional text in the way that they actually worked in reality what in your experience of uh, of the the post-soviet space um has has been the the interaction between party and the constitution in governing power relationships in the state yeah, this is a really interesting question because inevitably uh, one has to re- one has to be very careful when you're talking about uh, non-democratic regimes. That is a very large spectrum, and within uh, individual non-democratic regimes, we would expect to see a variation on uh, political power and the strength of political power, and that in turn uh, is often uh, reflected in um, party politics. Uh, so let's just take um, two case studies uh, as as an example. If we have a look at um, President Putin in the Russian Federation, uh, since the fourth convocation of the State Duma um, in the early 2000s, Putin has had a constitutional majority, uh, and uh, that um, constitutional majority is absolutely essential um, to uh, the passage of constitutional uh, amendments. Um, the the, the, the critical thing here then is that you have uh, a party of power uh, and a party of strength uh, uh, that is um, passing uh, the threshold of legitimacy among the population as a whole, such that you have control over um, the uh, state uh, or federal legislature. So having that domination is absolutely key. Uh, if we take... Um, uh, Serge Sargsyan as another example uh, in uh, in Armenia. Um, Sargsyan had a very different um, degree of political power in Armenia than President Putin. Um, he was, however, also able uh, to rely upon uh, his own uh, party in Armenia to um, endorse constitutional uh, amendment. But um, what we see developing after the amendment process is the complete collapse of his authority uh, because uh, I'm not for a moment suggesting that United Russia, which was the party party of power in Russia, uh, had um, uh, necessarily any greater objective democratic legitimacy, but its political strength among the electorate was ultimately proven to be far greater uh, than uh, that of Serge Sargsyan's Republican Party in Armenia. And the, the result for Sargsyan was devastating because having passed the amendment, having got through the formal process of amending the constitution, uh, there was a revolution in April of uh, 2018 in response to his attempt uh, to uh, capture a new, um, newly instituted parliamentary 
republic. And, and so we see that party politics has an impact firstly on the passage of constitutional amendment, but secondly also uh, uh, in the uh, longevity of the amendment itself uh, and, and the regime's ability to survive what might be seen as flaws in the legitimacy of that amendment process. And you make a crucial point there that obviously we can't can't generalise um, about these regimes any more than we can generalise about the, the regimes that we would um, normally categorise as democracies. Um, but um, a question that, that you sort of lead me to then is, is the question of popular constitutionalism. How important is the concept of constitutionalism to uh, the quote-unquote people in... Uh, the regimes that you've studied and how much do they follow um, these kinds of shifts and, and the way that, that ruling parties and leaders interact with the constitution? Yes, uh, let's let's adopt then, uh, if we think about um, popular constitutionalism in the classic sense that was adopted by um, people like Larry Kramer in the United States, and we see popular constitutionalism as being... Um, an understanding that the constitution is owned and potentially also enforced by the public because of that sense of ownership. I think this is really, really quite critical at both ends of the timeline that I've just discussed. So the the process of amending the constitution and also um, thereafter, once the amendment is passed, the um, process of uh, the, the... Can you hear me, Grace? Sorry. Oh, perfect. Yes, I can hear perfectly. Um, there are. So let's start again. It's all. It's very important um, ex ante prior to passing a constitutional amendment, uh, because um, if uh, amendments are seen to be owned by uh, the population at large, um, uh, and and the public is seen as a stakeholder, uh, there is potentially a greater chance. Uh, that it would be adopted and a greater chance that it would be seen as, as legitimate. But it's also really, really important ex post facto because the survival of the regime in part depends upon uh, the, uh, the ability to mimic, to mimic um, features of uh, democratic accountability um, and uh, to mimic uh, features of um, uh, constraint on government features of constitutionalism. So just looking at the um, ex-ante uh, factor first, uh, when we look at Putin's reforms in 2020, we see what Paul Good has referred to as uh, patriotic legitimation coming to the fore of these amendments. So you see um, the, um, the uh, entrenchment of um, principles of um, orthodoxy and commitment to uh, the Russian Federation's or, or Russia's uh, religious history and orthodox history coming into the amendment process. Um, there are now passages within the Russian constitution that talk about its um, thousand uh, year old history uh, and its connection to uh, Russian orthodoxy. But in addition, you see an increasing uh, culture war uh, being brought into the amendment process. So w w we also saw a commitment to marriage being between a man and a woman in the Russian constitution, potentially rendering uh, 
same-sex marriages um, unconstitutional uh, within the Russian setting. Uh, so why is this relevant to uh, popular constitutionalism? Well, it was seen as an attempt by Putin to shore up his support among certain sections of the Russian population. And there's no doubt that those measures may well find support uh, within more conservative um, uh, corners of public opinion. So the populist angle was certainly very important, especially in circumstances where Putin was putting this to a public vote, a nationwide vote in, um, in 2020. When we look at the ex post facto situation, this is a really dangerous moment for the authoritarian. We, we often think that uh, non-democrats can simply institute uh, reform uh, and we almost um, accept as an inevitability uh, that these amendments will pass and that their longevity is secured. But that's not always the case. And we saw this in Serge Sargsyan's uh, example. Having created a new parliamentary republic, Serge Sargsyan was faced with a popular uprising because although elements of this new uh, parliamentary republic were endorsed by the population, they were not willing to endorse him as uh, the prime minister. And so uh, that's where uh, ownership, the sense of ownership of uh, the constitution may actually also be dangerous uh, as well as uh, supportive uh, of uh, non-democratic leaders. This idea of mimic mimicking uh, democratic um, regimes in certain respects is a really interesting one um, that makes me think about sort of the you know the, the extent of a sort of global normalization of certain ways of conducting government or sort of appearances of conducting government. But in the interest of time, what I want to get onto is the question of legislatures and judiciaries. Um, so as, as you pointed out, we spend a lot of time thinking about, um, we spend a lot of time thinking about leaders in these types of regimes. Um, but, but as you're also saying, um, these other institutions can be very significant. Um, so how significant is it for um, a President Putin to have control over um, the Duma um, and the judiciary in Russia? Yeah, the the uh, the control over the state Duma, for example, is is is, is critical. Uh, in order to pass uh, constitutional amendments, you need a constitutional majority uh, within the um, federal assembly, and and having uh, control over the state Duma, as Putin effectively does through uh, the United Russia um, Party of Power, as it's called, it, it is a very critical factor, and it's really interesting that. We've discussed the uh, 2024 problem, uh, but mm, there are there are some commentators who believe that the 2021 problem was just as much of an obstacle for Putin, precipitating the reforms early in 2020. What do I mean by the 2021 problem? Well, there were Duma elections in 2021, and at the back end of 2019, early 2020, um, it was not taken for granted that United Russia uh, would obtain that majority. Now, in hindsight, uh, because we've uh, we've seen uh, the 2021 elections were actually far more favourable for United Russia than we thought, uh, whether by 
um, uh, hook or by crook, uh, uh, Putin has managed to obtain that constitutional majority again. In hindsight, that was not an issue. But looking at things prospectively, Putin may not have been certain that if he delayed in the reform process, he would have been able to uh, pass uh, his uh, amendments. So we, we've looked at the, the legislature, but let's think also about the uh, judicial organs of power, because we see in both uh, the Russian Federation and in Belarus, um, pretty soon into discussions about potential reform, the uh, chairman of constitutional courts and supreme courts begin to rear their heads. And uh, a good example of that was Valery Zorkin in, uh, in Russia. Soon after the presidential elections uh, in 2018, Zorkin begins talking about the need for uh, reform, for constitutional reform within Russia. Now, one can't easily make conclusions about whether he was making those comments independently uh, of the presidency. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to engage in this sort of uh, active um, uh, Putinology uh, or Kremlinology. Um, who knows uh, who was really influencing Zorkin or whether he was acting independently. But we do see pretty soon after the election Zorkin talking about the need for reform. Uh, and um, one thing that will be interesting in my research is seeing the extent to which his proposals, uh, particularly in relation to greater legislative oversight of the presidency really made it into uh, the, uh, the the eventuating amendments. But the other good example is Lukashenko. It's pretty soon after the um, fraudulent elections in August of 2020 and the emergence of public protests on the streets of Minsk, uh, you, you suddenly see Lukashenko sitting down in a public forum uh, that uh, is uh, filmed uh, and reported on widely in the uh, state-owned media, uh, him sitting down with the chairman of uh, the uh, Constitutional Court uh, and discussing the prospect of reform. So judicial, what might be called judicial capture or judicial co-optation uh, may well be, to varying degrees, an important part of this um, process of using amendment to uh, the leadership's advantage. Thank you for listening to Conventions, a podcast about the history of constitutions brought to you by the Quill Project at Pembroke College, Oxford. I'm Grace Mallon, and I've been talking to lawyer and academic researcher Paul Fisher about the conundrum of authoritarian constitutionalism.